Here's the deal. Don't live in the love of the world, but rather give your life in love for the world through Christ. Do you understand that God loves the world and gave his only begotten son to die for our sins? Do do you understand that? So he calls us to not have the love of the world, but rather a love of God so that we can then have a love for the world and give our lives to preach the gospel to the world and serve the world that God's justice, God's goodness, God's kindness would be exposed and revealed in the world. You got that? Okay. To help you get that, and prior to me preaching, we've put together a video that's going to remind us Don't love the world, don't live in the love of the world, its possessions, its attention, and its values, but rather love God so that then you can have a love for the world like Christ did to give your life for the world, okay? So if we're ready, let's hit the lights and let's show the video, please.
Amen. That was a fantastic video. Not only did it inspire our souls, but it cleared our sinuses. I think that's as loud as I've ever heard any music in this place. That was good. That was good. That woke everybody up. (laughs) Thank you, tech team. We have just assembled. If you could adjust this, because yeah, there you go. Driving me crazy. Uh, If you could... (laughs) Not that I'm a perfectionist, Javi. We heard about that yesterday, right? I can't be a perfectionist. Uh, We have just inaugurated a creative tech team, and you just saw their first piece of work. Wasn't that great, church? Amen. Amen. It is a small team, but it is growing. And uh, I think that we benefit from seeing visually the biblical truths that we heard the last three weeks, is it not? I think it's helpful. So, turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew 6, 25. A recession-proof life. Loving the world with Christ's love. That's the title of today's message. A recession-proof life. Loving the world with Christ's love. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew 6, 25. Beautiful, beautiful scripture. Jesus Christ is teaching On the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching. And he comes to us with these words in Matthew 6.25, and he says the following. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you therefore do not be about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious yes it will be for itself Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Lord, I need your help to preach this message. My friends need this, your help to hear this message, and we all need your help to apply this message. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the Bureau of Standards in Washington, D.C., a dense fog covering seven city blocks to a height of 100 feet is composed of less than one glass of water. That amount of water is divided into about 60 billion 
tiny droplets. Yet, when those minute particles settle over a city or the countryside, they can almost blot out everything from sight. And so our anxiety, dear friends, though small in a little cup worth of the things in life, if allowed to, can blot out our light of witness for Christ and dampen our joy as much as a a fog, a thick fog on an early morning. One small cup of anxiety can do this. And that is the reason that our Lord in Matthew 6 says, do not be anxious. Four times, do not be anxious. My prayer this morning is that God would send His Spirit to blow away the fog of our anxiety covers our witness for Christ and dampens our joy for the Lord, that he would blow it away by the truth that God is good, God is sovereign, and God will care for us. And God calls us to love the world. That fog has to be blown off so that we can love the world and look it square in the eyes and Jesus can shine through and they can feel the warmth of his love. Yes, We're called to love the world. This is number four in a four-part mini-series on do not love the world. But this, number four, is actually the sum and summary of the first three. Let me remind you. Let me remind you of what 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, which is what we've been preaching through. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Folks, we must not love the world so that we can love the world. We must not love the world so we can love the world. Because here's the deal. God commands us to love Him first and then our neighbor second. And we just read in 1 John that if we love the world, we can't love the Father. So therefore, to fulfill the commandment to love God and our neighbor, we have to resist the seductive desires of a fallen world, the desires for possessions, the desires for popularity, the desires for attention, the desires, the values of the world. But we die to that so that we can live to a vibrant Christ-centered love for the world. Let me show you a scripture in Matthew 22 that speaks of this. Matthew 22, verse 36 to, uh, to 40 says the following, here's the greatest commandment. They said, teacher, Which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, but it's not the end of it. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Notice that not only are we to love God, but we're then to love the world. That's right. A love for God must go hand in hand with a love for our neighbor. Without one, we cannot have the other. That is what 1 John 3, 16 through 17 tells us. 
It tells us that God's commandment to love one another takes on a very practical expression like helping my brother. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. This is God's love for the world. God doesn't love the values of the world. God doesn't love the world's possessions. God doesn't love the world's attention. God doesn't love the world's values. No, but God has a love for the world. And he came as Christ and died for the world. And therefore he calls us, we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. You can't do that if you have a love of the world. You can only do it if you have a love of God. And then you can love the world the way he intends it. Verse 17. This is what it looks like when we love the world. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you have a love of the world, you will close your heart to the physical needs of others. You will say, mine. You go find your own. God says, no. No. My friends, this is why right now we need to pay careful attention. Because God has commanded us to not love the world Because if we love the world, as we just said, we cannot love him. And if we do not love him, by extension, we cannot love the world. We will not love others. We will love ourselves far more than anything or anybody to include God. This is very, very important. This is very serious, dear friends. The seductive love of the world must die so that a pure love of God will live. But that's not the end of the equation. So that we can then express a sincere love for the world. So here's the deal. Here's what God's saying to you. You want to know what God's saying to you this morning? Do not have a love of the world, friend. Have a love of God, but then let that motivate in you a love for the world in Christ. Do you see that? That's God's appeal this morning. That's God's appeal. That's the goal we have in mind. As, as, as we began the series, let me review it for you. Three weeks ago, Corey served us so well. He preached the message that said, do not love the world's possessions. Do you like the speedboat up there? That one got me. I can drive a beater car, but nice boat. Now that kind of, that gets me a little. Do not love the world's possessions. Otherwise known as materialism. Because it's idolatry, guys. Greed is idolatry. Scripture teaches us. But instead, Corey urged us, and God urged us through Corey, to love God and his people, which is called charity. Oh, I love this line that Corey gave us. He said, listen, don't use people to get things. Use things to love people. And don't we get that mixed up at times? And then two weeks ago, Corey, again, communicated to us beautifully from 1 John 2. He says, listen, don't love the world's attention, otherwise known as immodesty. Because it's selfish. But instead, he urges us to love God and his meekness, which is called modesty. And instead of using our bodies and our personalities to draw attention to ourselves, use them to draw attention to Christ and to serve a broken world. And last week, I had the wonderful, wonderful privilege to preach to you about not loving the world's values, which is called impurity and darkness. But instead, we're children of light, and let us discern what pleases God. So instead of taking into our minds and our eyes impure images, impure music, impure media, let us be discerning so that we could take in things that would cause us to shine with the light of the glory of Christ. 
to a lost and dying world. And, and that brings us then to Matthew chapter 6. And I want you to refocus on Matthew chapter 6 again. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 6 again. And if we could get that up here, Matthew 6.25. And I want you to see that the purpose of this morning's message is this. Do not be anxious. I want you to see how being anxious is synonymous with loving the world. We're going to try to show you that. Do not be anxious, so don't have a love of the world, but seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. That is the second part. Do God's will. Have a love for the world. All right? So let's look at it carefully in this scripture up here on the screen or in your Bibles. Look how many times he says it. I'm just going to run through it quickly. Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's number one. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Yes, God's sovereignty extends to the birds that we see out here. He feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Well, of course you are. Verse 27, and which of you by being anxious, there is the second reference to anxiety, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Number three, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Yes, O oh, you of little faith. Yes, that is me, Lord. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. Fourth reference now, fourth use of this word anxious. Don't be anxious, says Jesus, saying, what shall you drink or what shall you eat or what shall you drink or what shall you wear? Verse 32. For the Gentiles, the unbeliever, the godless, seek after all these things. See, they seek after them forgetting this next part. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. We should not be that way. But rather, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And then finally, verse 34, one more time. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So what is, what is the propositional statement? What is the theme of today's message? What is the theme of this passage? It is this. Do not be anxious. But first, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Here we are commanded, folks, to not be anxious, but to seek God's kingdom. The command to not be anxious has to be seen as synonymous with the command in 1 John 2 to not love the world. Listen carefully. Someone who loves the world and its desires will be anxious, especially in a recession. Ouch. Oh, yes. Someone who loves the world in the wrong way will be anxious, and that anxiety will will be revealed in a recession, which is why this recession is such a gift for us. On the other hand, someone who does the will of God which is that verse 17 in 1 John 2. Someone who loves God and seeks his kingdom, they're not going to be anxious in a recession. They're going to look for opportunities to serve God in the midst of a recession. 
My friend, if you love the world's things, possessions, if you love the world's attention, if you love the world's values, then you will be anxious in a recession. But if you love God and you love His things and His kingdom, then you will actually look for opportunities to serve in the midst of a recession. This morning, God wants to speak to our hearts through this passage. He wants to speak to our hearts and He wants to say, which love is in you? What characterizes your life? Think of it this way. God wants to give us a godly love for the world to replace the ungodly love of the world. And he uses the recession and our response to it to help us discern where we have this ungodly love of the world. Because he knows that that ungodly love of the world will bear no fruit. Are you experiencing significant anxiety right now? And if so, over what? God wants to speak to you and to me in the midst of this serious economic recession so that we would be cured of our idolatrous love of the world that often hides because it is seductive so that we might then have a pure love of God that moves us into a glorious love for the world. Point one, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. If we can get that point up there, if you have that, David, that'd be great. Don't be anxious. The root of anxiety is idolatry. The root of anxiety is idolatry. I'm just going to wait for a moment. Is it going to happen? Five, four, three, let's go. Two, one. Woo! Did it not transfer? Did the thumb drive not transfer? Okay, great. Don't be anxious. The root of anxiety is idolatry. Now, why would I say that? Because the scriptures tell us right before Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus gives us discernment to tell us that the root of anxiety is idolatry. If you have your Bibles, look at it. Matthew six nineteen to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what Jesus is saying here, he, Jesus preaches that, okay? He preaches that, and then he says... You can't love God and money. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And then he says, therefore, don't be anxious. What he helps us see is that the root of anxiety is idolatry. The root of anxiety is a love of the world, friend. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't say, you can't love God and the world. And then his next word says, therefore. What's that therefore, therefore? The therefore is there to tell you, therefore, that it's idolatry when you're anxious. Are you convinced? All right, all right. Preach, Al. Do we have the quote? Yeehaw. You guys get a raise. 
Can we make it bigger? I'm asking too much, aren't I? Don't try this at home. All right, here we go. Here's the quote. First, oh yeah, oh yeah, no, no, no. Hey, hey, you you haven't seen anything yet. We're going to wow and amaze you today before it's all over. First, let's read this quote that helps us understand that anxiety reveals idolatry. Listen, first, Jesus tells you in verses 19 to 24 of Matthew 6 that anxiety or worry is idolatry. Idolatry means to worship someone or something other than the true and living God. It is giving yourself to some person, goal, ideal, or object other than Jesus. It involves hitching your heart. Remember what he said? Where your treasure is, there's your heart. What do you treasure? Who do you treasure? Who do you get anxious about? Who do you think about all the time? Do they like me? Do they not like me? Boy, am I going to, uh, disappointment. Are are they mad at me? What do you hit your heart? What's got your heart? What do you want that you're not getting? What do you wake up thinking about? What do you worry about? That's your idol. That's your idol. It involves hitching your heart to some false savior and refuge could be a TV program. I don't know. could be success. It involves hitching your heart to some false savior and refuge, exalting your personal desires above the Lord, serving some master other than God. Worry expresses idolatry in the heart. Your worry is a sign that in some way you are trusting in yourself that you are building your life on things or people other than Jesus. It is really serious. It's like having cancer and not knowing it. And someone taking you to the doctor and they do an x-ray and they go, whoops, Mr. Pino, you have a spot on your lung. I don't feel the spot on my lung. I don't see the spot on my lung. I'm not coughing up blood. Oh, but you have it there, Mr. Pino. And unless we take it out, you will be coughing up blood. So anxiety is like the x-ray that says, excuse me, you have an idol in your heart. I don't feel like I have an idol in my heart. I don't see the idol in my heart. I love Jesus. How dare you tell me I have an idol in my heart? I'm not telling it to you. Jesus is telling it to you. Because he wants to heal you. But you've got to get on the operating table. Don't run out of the hospital. Blame the doctor. Your anxiety is an automatic indicator of a heart that is not fully following the Lord, but is temporarily following something else. My friend, worry is a sign that you're trusting yourself. It's a sign that you're not trusting God. Jesus commands us here to not be anxious. He commands us to not be anxious in a time where anxiety is ruling. He says, don't be anxious, but rather seek God's kingdom. He says, seek God's righteousness. So God is speaking to our hearts through this recession. What do you treasure? What are you anxious about? You cannot love God and love that like you love it. You cannot love God and love the world. You cannot serve two masters because you will be devoted to one or you will despise the other. And some of you youth here despise God because you're playing a game 
you love the world and you're trying to obey mommy and daddy, but it doesn't work. And you end up despising God. And God's giving you a way out and it's to repent. Dive at the feet of Jesus. Give him your idol. Give him the thing you always think about that you really live for. And you will have glorious, joyous, pure love and devotion to God. My friends, the love of the world and the love of God are like oil and vinegar. They do not mix. You can play your little games and try to mix them, but the rest of us see that they're not mixing. Everybody knows they don't mix. Don't mix them. Kill the love of the world. I, I feel I just, I'm going to share this. If this causes anybody to stumble, I'm sorry, but I, I, feel, I feel led of the Spirit to share this. You want to know what my idol is? <laughs> the number of people that are in these seats. I'm just being honest. Can I be honest with you? Called to serve you as a pastor. It doesn't mean I'm any better than you. I wrestle with my idols. Don't look at me so seriously. Man, you guys look, oh my God, man. Oh my God. Is it wrong for me to want this place filled for the glory of God? No. Is there a mixture of wanting it filled for the glory of Al? Yes. (laughs) Ow! So when I wake up on Monday morning, what do I think about? That tells you what I'm worshiping. That tells you what my idol is. I'm called to lead the church and think through strategies to evangelize that people would be saved and come to the church. I'm not called to worry about it. Be anxious about it. I'm just trying to show you my heart, okay? This is how it works. You take this x-ray, you apply it to your heart. Would you please? Don't play games with God. Even if they're religious games cloaked in religious garb, don't. They don't mix. God's not going to let them mix. So what has this recession revealed in your heart? What has what you're not getting right now that you really would like to get and think about all the time revealed about your idols? Do you have a love for God that is pure? Or do you have a love for the world and its attention and its things and its definition of success? That's the question. What do you worry about? What does it reveal? Point two. Point number two. If the object of your heart is God, then here's what you will do. You will seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. You will seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. So let's transition. Let's transition from the x-ray room, which is the anxiety of my heart, the worry of my heart, what I obsess about. In fact, if this helps you, listen to this. The recession reveals your obsession. The recession reveals your obsession. If your obsession is with God, you're going to seek his kingdom. You're going to seek his righteousness. You're going to give your money in a time when there is no money. You're going to give your time in a time when you don't have much time. You're going to give your talents to God. You're going to go gonzo for God. But if your obsession 
is a fear that God's not going to provide for me. If your obsession is, in my case, my own glory, to see more people here so my reputation as a pastor grows, God won't play that game because he loves me too much. So he brings a recession, whatever it is, money, people, reputation, whatever, to reveal my obsession so that my obsession would become my savior. And when my savior is my obsession, then I can love the Lord, with a pu- love the Lord and the world with a pure love and give myself for that with joy. I'm not a slave of anything. Bring on the recession. Bring on anything. I'm just going to serve God because I'm obsessed with Him. So you can't take away that. But if you're obsessed with anything else, trust me, pal, it'll get taken away. It'll get taken away. Even, you know, First John says this. Don't love the world, man, because the world is passing away. Come on, guys, wake up. It's passing away before our eyes. Your 401k is now a 201k. How much more do you want it to pass away? Yeah. So why are you loving that? So, let's move out of the operating room, okay, x-ray room. Let's now move into the to the recovery room. All right? Let's move to the recovery room. What's the recovery room? Point two. This is what Jesus tells us in chapter 6, verse 33, isn't it? What does he say? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now let me try to talk to you about the kingdom of God for a moment. The kingdom of God is defined thusly. I believe it's defined this way throughout Scripture. Here's the kingdom of God, and it should be in the notes there on that thumb drive I gave you. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. All right, so now stay with me for a second. I'm trying to help you put feet to Christ's command to seek his kingdom, okay? So let let me do that for a second, biblically. Let's think about this definition of the kingdom of God. Let's think about the original people the original setting. There you have the kingdom of God first presented for us. What do you have? You have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden. Under God's rule, they're obeying God and God's blessing. God gives them a command and Adam is to rule the world underneath God's leadership and there's blessing for he and Eve. It is paradise. And it lasts exactly two chapters in the Bible. And in chapter 3, what happens? God's people get a better idea. I can be God. And there goes paradise. Because they get out from underneath of God's rule. And what does God have to do because God is holy? He must judge them. So he evicts them from God's place. He puts on them a curse rather than a blessing. And we've been living under that curse for the rest of time. But immediately upon God's judgment, what does God say? God says this. But you know what? Satan, serpent, the seed of this woman, and he's talking about Jesus Christ, will come and step on the head and crush the head of your seed. 
though you will bruise his heel. And so right at the beginning, God says, I'm going to restore a new people, my people, in a new place now in Christ, under a new rule, the lordship of Christ, to receive a new blessing, life eternal. And down through the pages of Scripture, we see this blessing. And even Jesus Christ himself, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, when he came, he came saying, this is what I'm preaching. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The promise that God made to Adam and Eve, the promise he made to the serpent is fulfilled. I'm the seed. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And then we read in Titus 2, 11 to 14. What, am I, what I'm doing with these scriptures is trying to solidify for you that when Jesus says, seek the kingdom, he's talking about the gospel and the product of the gospel, the church and the people of God in Christ and the promise of God, the blessing of Christ, eternal life. We're to seek this. Titus 2, Paul writing to Titus, a pastor in Crete, He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 14. We're to wait for Jesus. We're to wait for His glorious appearing. Why? Look at verse 14. Who gave Himself? Why did Jesus give Himself? To redeem us from all lawlessness, to do what? To purify for himself what? A people. The people of God. In the place of God. Right now it's in Christ. One day it'll be in the new heavens and new earth. Under the rule of Christ, we're redeemed from lawlessness and now we're going to obey Jesus. And we receive the blessing of God for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then look at Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Beautiful passage. Here's the end game, man. If the, if the beginning of the game was the Garden of Eden, but then it was interrupted by sin and Satan and our rebellion, we rebelled against God's rule and he rejected us, but then in Christ he receives us so that we might obey him. The end of the game, the fourth quarter, as the clock ticks zero, boom, and Jesus comes back. Yeah! Here's what we're living for. Not this earth. Don't love this world. It's passing away. He made us for something better. This is what he made us for. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's God's people, man. We are the bride of Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Oh, I can't wait for this day. Can you hear it, friends? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, paradise restored. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself, God himself will be with them. Once again, we'll walk with God and be with God, not separated. God himself will be with them as their God. And look what God's going to do. He's going to come, and he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Is there a tear in your eye this morning? Is there a brokenness in your heart? God's going to wipe it away from you. It's going to wipe away every tear, all the sin 
and the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning and no more crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write it down. These words are trustworthy and true. That's what we live for. And nothing on this earth can come close. I don't care if there were 5,000 people I'm preaching to right now. It doesn't come close. I don't care if you have exactly what you want. It doesn't come close. We're going to cry and weep and mourn and hurt on this earth. But we're going to love Jesus because our eyes are on that place. Do you see that that's what it means to seek the kingdom of God? and his righteousness. If this quote, if you have this quote, so what, how does that translate for us? This is a great quote. It's from the book, Worldliness, Resisting the Seduction of a Fallen World. It says the following. What avenues of involvement would enable me to seek first the kingdom of God? How might I serve the poor and underprivileged? How could I help to reverse inequities and establish justice? Heartbeat of Miami. It's a good way for us to work in this church. Taste of Miami Lakes next weekend. Evangelize your neighbor. Work to to help those that are disadvantaged. There's so many things. What gifts do I have that could be deployed for the good of my neighbors and the betterment of my community, the welfare of my city? Even though such activities may not directly communicate the gospel, they may well embody God's redemptive purposes by bringing peace and blessing to others. The righteousness of God, my friends, is found in Christ and we are to seek to apply that to a lost and dying world. Application point. Application point. I want to urge you to seek God for clarity on whom or what your heart trusts, dear friends. And I want you to urge you to seek God to see where your anxiety leads you as far as your false idols that will never satisfy you. And then please receive God's grace to discern where you're self-focused, where you're self-sufficient, where you're seeking to protect your little kingdom instead of advancing God's kingdom in the midst of a recession. Forget your little world. You can't save it. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses it for Christ will gain everything. Stop withholding your heart out of idolatrous concern for yourself. God knows what you need. He knows you need clothes and food and relationships. He knows what you need. He's given us this gift of recession to reveal our obsession so that we might follow him and obsess about him. One of our sisters a couple of weeks ago had a picture in prayer of a piggy bank. And we were holding this little piggy bank standing probably in front of some bank with millions of dollars. And God, God was asking us to put it down and let, it, let, us, let him knock it over and break it so that the money would flow out, so that the joy would flow out, so, so that like that woman in the New Testament who was, who was forgiven of her harlotry and of her sin and of her grotesqueness she did against God, she came when he was sitting in a Pharisee's house and she cried and cried and cried. And then another instance, they poured out this perfume on his feet and they wiped his hair with their feet and cried and cried cried and the pharisees just sitting there going yeah whatever i just want to know jesus are you with me or what 
And she's crying and crying and crying. And she's giving all that she has. And God says, don't be anxious and protect your little kingdom like the Pharisee. But break everything. Give it all for God. Which will it be? Will you trust God? Will you advance his kingdom? Will you give it all? Will you seek his righteousness? Or will you worry about preserving your little kingdom? Playing your little games? Life being all about you? Let's end with one scripture. And then I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, the team would join me. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. This is a great one, guys. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And may your requests not be so selfish, but may they be kingdom requests. Oh God, I pray that you would provide for Heartbeat of, of, of Miami and their, their, their clinics to help women with unwanted pregnancies. Oh Lord, I pray that you would give us, Lord, courage to, to preach the gospel. Oh Lord, I pray for my neighbor. Let those be the prayers. I believe those are the prayers he's talking about here. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which surpasses recession. It's recession-proof. will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Worship team, come up, please. Please bow your head in prayer. Lord, I pray that this morning you would speak to my heart, which wrestles with its own idols, has its own agenda, though cloaked in religious garb. I pray that you would deal with the hearts of my friends that are listening right now. Whatever it is they are obsessed about, whatever it is they think about, whatever wrong they think has been done to them that they can't get over, whatever person dominates their thinking, whatever, whatever little self-pity game they play about, oh, woe is me, my life hasn't turned out the way I wanted it to be. Lord, would you come with the x-ray of your word? Would you come with grace and expose that idol? And get us out of our own little worlds and lift our heads to see you. And then, Lord, give us the wonderful impetus of the Holy Spirit and blow your spirit upon us. And may that blow us out into a world to live, to love you and serve others. That we would seek your kingdom, Lord, rather than be anxious. That we would seek your righteousness rather than worry. Oh, God. You are faithful. You've always been faithful. Therefore, we don't have to worry about that stuff. You gave your son to die for us. Romans 8, 32. How will you not also with him then freely give us all things? 